Good morning and welcome to AC23, the podcast of the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge, whose mission is to promote cultural growth, economic development, and educational enhancement through the out the 11 parish region we serve. I'm your host, Pam Bordelon, and joining me this morning is Amy native and LSU grad Samuel C. Spitali. He's in town for the book uh, Louisiana Book Festival, touting his latest work, How to Win the War on Truth. Chris, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking some time out of what I know has been a busy, busy time during your visit. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your book. The title is How to Win the War on Truth. So exactly what does that mean? Sure. So, well, yeah, actually the title, we went back and forth a lot with the publisher trying to figure out what it should be called. Um, we to- toyed around with like the propaganda playbook or um, there was just, there were tons of ideas, but we ended up going with, yeah, how to win the war on truth because it feels like these days there is a war on what's true. There's just so much BS <laughs> out there. Yeah. Um, encompassing everything from, you know, cultural myths to misinformation, disinformation, um, to elaborate propaganda campaigns. Um, And so, you know, the book hopefully is a, uh, aims to help people see what is true and what's not, um, especially when it comes to corporate and political communication, Um, you know, to a kind of a guide to debunk some of the mistruths that are all over the internet. Okay. You know, when when Google and the internet first came about, everybody was all about the urban myths. So how has it mushroomed from something that was kind of hokey and you kind of pretty much said, oh, I need to go look this up because I bet that's what this is to what we have today? Oh, God, it's gotten so much worse. (laughs) Um, Even just like 10, 15 years ago, um, I was reading in in some notes about how like, you know, in like 2009 or uh, so, like they weren't even that concerned with misinformation to the degree that it is now. Um, So things have changed a lot in the last few years. And one of the biggest changes is probably the social media algorithms. So not social media in and of itself, but the... The algorithm that changed um, around 09 or so, I forget exactly when. Um, so like, you know, we used to in our f- Facebook Facebook feeds back in like 07 or 08, we would see a lot of stuff from our family and friends and um, more communal kind of things. Yeah. Um, and then they changed the algorithm uh, and based it like on likes. And so what that means is... Uh, Things that are more viral and things that are more emotionally driven um, tend to register more. So something that makes us angry or, you know, upset or spiteful or fearful, uh, things that engage us emotionally tend to be the things that are most widely circulated and spread. And so what that means is we see more of these things in our feed. So less, you know, family dogs and (laughs) marriages or kids and more... Um, you know, hate speech and fear-mongering and things like that. And so what the research has shown is that in the last 10 years, as the social media algorithms have changed to show us more and more of this type of content, um, basically they have to keep raising the emotional bar to engage us. So if it starts out at, say, an 8 or something, then to hold our interest, the next one needs to register as a 9 or a 10, and then it just keeps going, and you go into a rabbit hole of, like, hate speech um, and extremist um, material, uh, you know, the, sa- the same thing with YouTube is it's the effect there too. Um, and so anyway, so the media keeps y- y- what we're seeing 
um, is making us more irate, more devi- divisive, um, often pinning in-groups against out-groups, you know, making yeah. you hate people who are different from you. And what they found is that uh, like violent attacks and extremist uh, extremism kind of grows with this um, is an effect of it. it you know, it's having um, a legitimate, uh, measurable outcome in real life. Um, and democracies across the globe have been suffering since this algorithm has come into play. You know, demagogues have risen in power, uh, political opportunists, bad actors. And so it's just so easy for bad actors now to get coverage and reach in a way that wasn't possible just 10 years ago. Yeah, so it's like you like so that they can tailor it so that that the things that might poke a hole and make you go, oh, maybe that's not, maybe I need to look at it this way, don't ever filter through. Right, because it, right. So if um, one of the examples was... Um, there was a social scientist and I don't, she has a Ted talk. Um, and she's, I think she's written a book too, but as an example, she was doing research. I think she was a journalist too. And, um, she was researching like Trump rallies or something. Mm -hmm. This is a few years ago now. Um, and she was rewatching a Trump rally, I think on YouTube and, um, for research. And she noticed that the autoplay, um, after she would rewatch the video would go to, uh, like white supremacist videos and they started out more benign. And then the more it recommends, the more extreme and the more hate speech and the more white power oriented it was. And so the Trump, uh, you know, the Trump rally was like a gateway (laughs) and it wouldn't show her anything less hateful and scary. So it just, as it went on, you know, it siloed her into this rabbit hole of white supremacist hate speech. And, and it's, you know, and it's not that the, you know, the algorithm or the company was deliberately trying to radicalize her. It's just, that's how the algorithm works. You know, um, it, if other people are watching these other things, then it's going to show you those things. And if those other people are more engaged Mm -hmm. and sharing that, then it's going to show you that. And so it's so easy to go down that rabbit hole and not see any of the conflicting stuff, any of the corrections. Um, And yeah, so yeah, we're in a really precarious time here with the way social media algorithms work, because what that means for the social media companies, that's more engagement. Sure. It doesn't matter if the engagement is hate speech or showing you how to, you know, destroy another uh, group or population. It's like it's clicks and it's advertising dollars. And so it's there's a financial incentive to enrage us online. Yeah. It also coincides with the uh, mainstreaming of smartphones. Where that it's yes. not just you have to you have to wait till you go home and get on your computer to do this. It's on your cell phone, which is attached to most of us twenty four seven, three sixty five. Absolutely right, because it's because that's it's so widespread because of that. It's everywhere. Like you, there's never turning it off. There's never getting away from it because it's it's in everything. Um, yeah, it just compounds the problem exponentially. So what? prompted you to write this book where did where did you how did you get on this bandwagon well yeah it's it's weird because at the time I wasn't necessarily focused on uh on my journalism background I uh I started my career at Lucasfilm after college and I worked on Star Wars and Indiana Jones product and about 10 years ago I moved to LA to focus on my own projects screenwriting and storytelling excuse me and um 
And so, but, you know, within the last 10 years, I found that a lot of my writing and storytelling was becoming a little more concerned with, uh, you know, uh, current events. And I was kind of returning a little to my journalism roots, seeing what was going on in the world, seeing the proliferation of misinformation and, and arguing with family and friends every time I would come home. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no exaggeration, especially around 2016. You know, that was the year that post-truth was the word of the year. And I was seeing it firsthand, like, especially with like family um, or friends, like I just kept, I felt like I was having the same conversations over and over and I was just hitting a wall, like correcting them with the correct information wasn't working. You know, they, they were talking conspiracy theories and just cultural myths and just misinfo. And it was like, oh, wow. Like I, you know, you just tend to think people think like you do. Yeah. And then until like a conversation makes you realize, oh, wow, they actually believe all the stuff that I like dismiss and you know, that I'm like, who believe, who buys this crap? Yeah. Um, and I was like, God, my own, you know, family and friends are buying this crap. And so I kind of became obsessed with how do we help them see through it? Or, you know, how you can't just, you know, it's not just, um, uh, it's not just fighting the misinfo with facts. You kind of have to help them step back to see who created those mistruths, how the mistruths are sold to us, who benefits by us believing the mistruths, and then, like, what are our biases and, you know, our psychological makeup that leads us to believe them and kind of protects us from accepting alternate reality, you know, seeing the reality, Um, you know, so there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. There's a lot of cognitive bias going on. There's, um, and, you know, media literacy is also a huge part of that equation. Um, I would think that lots of people, especially, um, you know, my parents' generation or older, when they are on social media, they probably can't distinguish, say, a public relations blurb from a journalism piece, yeah. from a marketing slogan, you know, like it's all information in a quick little bubble, but not everybody is equipped to distinguish. And yeah. out of all of the forms of mass communication, <laughs> journalism is the only one that's really concerned with getting to the truth. All the rest of them are just trying to sell us something. Yeah. So whether that's advertising or marketing or branding or PR you know, and it doesn't have to be selling a product. It could be selling a person. It could be selling an image. It could be selling an idea. Um, and a lot of the, you know, these online articles or social media feeds, a lot of that is selling an idea um, or wanting us to believe something about someone else or about other people. Or, And a lot of the times it's wanting us to believe stuff that is not in our personal best interest. Um, it is in, you know, a power structure's interest. It's in a corporation's interest. It's in someone's interest that's not our own. And so, and if they tap into our hate or anger or fear, then that kind of overrides critical thinking, which is exactly what they're wanting. Yeah. So, so um, the book is very, very eye-opening. Uh, but it's it's not, you know, it, that's that could be a very... Uh, dry subject matter that, you know, it's, it's got a lot of words and a lot of pages and people go, uh, but you kind of did it almost like a graphic novel. So yeah, it's fully illustrated. Um, and that's kind of how I always had envisioned it. Um, I should do a shout out to the illustrator, Alan Wincup, whose illustrations I think are awesome. 
Um, they give a nice sense of humor and levity to the material, yes. which I really wanted. Yeah. You know, you don't uh, feel like you necessarily need to go run screaming through the night <laughs> after reading No, it. I feel like it has a nice, like, whimsical tone that kind of pokes fun at itself. And I, you know, I'm a huge fan of social satire and like political yeah. op-ed cartoons and you know anything that shows the. Um, you know, the insanity or hypocrisy of the world around us. Um, and so I wanted a sense of humor with it. Um, and there were a lot of graphics I wanted. Um, I, be- you know, I believe in all the infographics. So there's yeah. a ton of data in charts and graphs and everything from inequality graphs to tax rate, how that's changed over the years, how the middle class has dwindled. You know, there were a lot of important uh, visuals that convey it way more than words can. So I definitely wanted that stuff in there. Uh, There's also a learning tool that's kind of a critical thinking learning tool um, uh, that I knew needed to be illustrated. And so we talked a lot, you know, the publisher and uh, about, you know, how illustrated should it be? Should it be a full on graphic novel or should it just kind of be spot illustrations here and there? And we both thought that um, it would be the most accessible to the widest possible audience if we went as a full graphic novel. Um, There's also a trend these days uh, with turning material into graphic novels. So there's a lot of really, uh, you know, important nonfiction books of the last, you know, 10 years that are being turned into graphic novels like Sapiens. And, um, I mean, even works of literature now, like The Handmaid's Tale. And, you know, there's all these books, The Diary of Anne Frank that are becoming graphic novels. Um, and that market has really taken off. So we kind of thought, well, what if we just skip the (laughs) in-between? Let's just go straight to the graphic novel. And, um, so yeah, that was kind of the, the the rationale and I'm really glad we did because it gives me a lot of fun artwork to play with and <laughs> yeah and yeah the illustrator do did you a think great job. it gives you a wider audience appeal I hope so I've I've heard that kids have really picked it up I mean discoverability is always tough in this day and age because there's so much competing for your attention um, and I think it definitely makes it more accessible especially for like teens or or the youth. Um, but I've even heard from uh, friends that have either bought the book or, you know, got one for to do an interview or something like this. Um, and I keep hearing stories about how their kids have picked it up um, and kind of taken it from them. <laughs> um, and as young as like eight or nine years old um, and looking through it and reading it and talking about it and as well as teens, too. But I'm always amazed at how young some of the people are that have found it and devoured it Um and I'm like, do they understand it? Like, that's pretty young. And they're You'd like, be yeah. Surprised. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I mean, the kids these days are way more informed than I was at that age and way more engaged in the world. And maybe partly that's the internet and social media. You know, it, you know they have uh, a way into the world that I, you know, I didn't grow up did without the internet. We did not have, no. I mean, the internet came around when I was in college. Um, but even at that point, it was, you know, I mean, it... It took a while before it became what it is today, but um, but yeah, it's just opened up so many doors to learning and information and just answering curiosity, which I would have, you know, I would have loved to have had at that age. Yeah. Uh, you know, you had to go to the library to look, to discover something, or you just asked your parents and they didn't know, like, oh, I don't know anything <laughs> about that. I, yeah, so it's just such a game changer um, to... If you're ever curious about anything as a kid now, you can find out. You can find out more about it at your fingertips, and that's definitely a blessing. You know, the curse is that you might not be finding the right information. Yeah. It may be BS, but... 
So you've got on a T-shirt, and I saw that also in your in your uh, book is called "Only You Can Prevent Troth Decay." So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I thought that that's you know a fun take. It was uh, there was a um, I forget the group, uh, but there's like a booklet about um, how to fight truth decay and what causes truth decay, and I talk about that a little in the book. But kind of all of the things working against truth out there, you know, partisan media, you know, tribal, our tribal tendencies, um, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation on social media, you know, not looking at credible sources. Uh, But I think truth decay is such a great way to describe you know, our modern environment where so much mistruth is out there. Uh, so, yeah, I wore it today. I was talking to LSU classes earlier, and so, I thought it was appropriate. So how does the average person prevent truth decay? What, <sighs> what can we do? What's the it's Yeah, the it's so here? not an easy answer. Um, uh, sometimes I, you know, I like to joke that, uh, yeah, optimism's not really my brand, but, um, but I think there are steps we could take. And one I think is media literacy. Like just because we consume media doesn't mean we're media literate. And so I think it's very important to notice what media messages, um, what's what, you know, what really is journalism or a fact and what is not, um, and one of the, I find one of the indicators is, you know, what are the emotions aroused in reading a headline or a news article? Um, because oftentimes, you know, news or headlines shouldn't make us hate somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like for, I was, uh, one example I like to give is, you know, like, let's say you see a news item that says immigrants are taking our jobs or something like that. Um, and clearly that's written to get you to hate immigrants. And so that's something that's appealing to our cognitive biases, our, you know, maybe racial hostility that's below the surface that we're not even aware of. Um, and so, you know, like I would counter with why is that the headline and not corporations are giving immigrants <laughs> your job because they'll work for cheaper than minimum wage yeah, or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Just as an example to see that, um, what should that headline really be? The headline is not, hate, you should go hate immigrants. The takeaway is that why are businesses or whatever so cheap that they don't want to pay Americans to do the work? They'll do it for people who work for pennies um, or whatever the other social factor is in that equation. Um, but to me, immigration is one of, I use that as an example in the book a lot because it's such a frequent. It's an inflammatory. It's inflammatory. And it's, um, you know, and that's also a good one uh, as a example for like when it comes to political ads or politicians, um, another way to tell like, okay, what, you know, who's telling the truth and who's BSing or what's going on is, are they providing solutions to whatever the problem is? Or are they just trying to cash in on the problem? So like if you see politicians running and there's negative campaign ads where all they're doing, doing is inflaming your ire about the crisis at the border, Mm -hmm. whether it's real or manufactured. If it's, if they're doing nothing about mudslinging, like look at what they're doing with the border. He's not controlling the border or what, like whatever it is, if it's just talk about the crisis or if it's making you angry about the crisis, that's not a solution. That's just getting you angry about what's going on. Whereas if you were trying to solve the problem, 
you would be running on immigration reform or citizenship or limiting citizenship, whatever it is, whatever the position is. Um, so I would say always be aware if someone's running on the solution or the problem and the person running on the problem has no solution. They're just trying to piss you off and uh, hinder your critical thinking. Yeah. So how did you how did you get interested in becoming a journalist? Where did that Well, come you know, from? I wasn't. <laughs> in, in school, I kind of ended up in journalism I don't, or in mass communication, and I don't even think I had a major. I think I started out in architecture, and then I looked at graphic design, and I ended up in advertising and with a minor in psychology as an undergrad. And then I graduated, still didn't know what the hell I wanted to do, so just went to grad school. And then during my grad school years, I got a little more focused. Um, again, this was because this was, I started school before the internet. So when I was a freshman in college, I remember looking up the class intro to mass media and I did not understand what that was. And I had to look up mass media in the dictionary to see what that is. And I thought, Oh, well I like entertainment. Like, okay, that's maybe me. And, but that's just how, you know, closed <laughs> off the world was yeah. for somebody growing up in Amy, Louisiana. that didn't know anything until I got to college. And so I was having this conversation the other day with someone is, you know, back then you got to college to then figure out what you wanted to do. You didn't go to college to get a degree in what you wanted to do. You yeah. went to college to then figure out what am I doing with my life? And so, and that's totally changed because now you can find out what you want to do, you know, it, in your pocket. And so anyway, so I ended up in mass communication, graduated and then got a, a master's in media management. And at that time I knew I kind of wanted to be in marketing or PR or entertainment, wanted to be in the, in the entertainment industry. And so that's when I interned at Lucasfilm and um, went to work um, on Star Wars and Indiana Jones product and then left Lucasfilm to basically pursue my own creative endeavors, okay. you know, screenwriting and TV writing and storytelling. And through that process, I found myself writing more and more about real world issues. As the world changed, I feel like my writing changed, things I was writing about changed. Even the scripts and stories I was focusing on changed to tackle more, you know, important issues. I guess that's part of getting older. Um, and so anyway, so... Um, yeah, I just found post-2016, I was writing more about you know, clearing up truths, holding the powerful accountable, speaking truth to power, um, and kind of just combating so much of the misinformation that basically does not work in our best interest. And so, yeah, so as much as I can speak the truth and help other people see the truth, yeah. So how can our listeners keep up with what... What's your uptake? Uh, sure. You can uh, go to my website, which is samuelcspitali.com. And that's also my handle on almost all social media, Twitter, Instagram, uh, whatever, backslash Samuel C. Spitali. Okay. And Spitali is spelled S-P-I-T-A-L-E. Correct. It's for those of those out there who might not, not know, how, know how to do that. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Uh, if, I highly recommend... That you 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 read Chris's book, How to Win the War on Truth. It is truly eye opening, and uh, it should be required reading. <laughs> to thank be you. Honest. I it think really, so too. It really should. We thank you for joining us this morning for AC Twenty Three. You can catch replays on Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Support for this programming comes from Shell, our generous donors and members. To help us continue programming like this, please consider joining the Arts Council or becoming a donor. Information can be found on our website, artsbr.org. That's A-R-T-S-B-R dot org. 